0: Oh, good morning. I think it's time to make a start. If we keep chatting, we'll be lunchtime soon. If you've got your Bibles, if you could open up to Exodus chapter 9. And today I'd like to go through, well, hoping to go through chapters 9 and 10. Because next week is the Passover when the firstborn are killed. So this will take us through the last few plagues. And we're going to look especially today at the four compromises which are actually a picture of the growth as a Christian and how Satan tries to hold us back from growing as a Christian. So, just as a recap from last week, uh, last week we learned about the plagues of frogs, lice and flies. We also saw how sin hardens our hearts. Hebrews warns is about the deceitfulness of sin, meaning that we don't actually notice what's happening. And I just kind of thought of this after the fact. It would have been good to include last week, but... You know the story of the frog being cooked... You know you put it into the boiling water, it jumps out, but if you put it in warm water, it will not perceive the danger and it will cook to death. So in the case of sin, we allow a little compromise, a little bit of the world, a little bit of the flesh or the old man to take over a little of the devil's influence to come into our lives, and then one day we find ourselves in hot water, We're dead meat. our sin has brought us death so this was the case with Pharaoh. Twice in chapter 8, it is said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, how? By refusing to obey the word of God. So don't just think, because you seem to be getting away with your sin, because no one really notices it, or it doesn't seem to be affecting anyone, that you are getting away with it. Beware. This is a tough lesson to learn. I've learnt this lesson. Beware, every time you sin, especially with repetitive or habitual sin, your heart will grow harder and harder. So you think you're getting away with it, but you're not. Your heart is growing hard. That's the cost of sin. You won't notice it, but it does. The Bible says it does. The problem then is that God has to break us yet again with his discipline, and we suffer the consequences of forgiven sin. So this week, let's just jump straight in, and as I said, we'll hopefully get through the two chapters. And at the end, we're going to go through those four compromises that we'll read about in here and see how that relates to us in our life as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus. So, Exodus, chapter 9, verse 1. Well, let's pray first. That would be a good idea, right? Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand, give us understanding, and that we could put what we learn into practice, Lord. Help us to discern truth from error, and uh, I pray that what I say will be true. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if he refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. So God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that his cattle, sheep, oxen, and donkeys would all die, because they would get sick with this fever or disease. So, you know, we worry about, you know, the bird flu and all that kind of stuff wiping out thousands or hundreds of thousands of chickens and cows being killed. Well, this is something that's extraordinary. It's something that went around the entire nation and killed all livestock. So think of the Egyptian economy. They needed their animals for transport. They needed their animals to plough their fields. They needed their animals for lots of things. For the flour mills, like for grinding and things like that. So in today's economy, just to put this into perspective, it would be like destroying all the cars, trucks, buses, tractors, headers, sprayers, planes, trains and motorbikes. So where do you think we'd be in today's society? Do you think we'd survive without all those things? Having to plant our seed by hand? It would be very, very difficult and then there's the issue of food. All the meat, obviously it's still got fish, but all the meat's gone. Uh, verse 4, And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. So, this is the second time that there's been a division between how God treats the Egyptians versus how God treats the Israelites. Back in Exodus 8.23, the flies only affected the Egyptians and not the Israelites. So the Israelites who lived in the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt but their own little suburb, so to speak, that was not affected. All the animals they had were not affected. Then, verse 7, Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So, God is trying to break through to Pharaoh's heart. Now, God has told him, Moses, that he's not going to get through. But guess what? He's still trying anyway. That's the, the grace of God. And Plague after plague hits Pharaoh, and that's hard. You know, you think he start to want to repent by now, but guess what? He doesn't. And it's doubly hard when you're going through something and someone else isn't. It makes it more difficult. You can't say, well, everyone's going through this. You know, everyone's doing suffering the same thing. No, this is for me. This is my fault. So verse 8, So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace And let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. This is animals and people. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now the furnace, we don't know for sure, but the furnace here was most likely to be that of the god Typhoon, where they would sacrifice humans in order to stave off the boils and sores for the remaining population. So that was there their health system. <laughs> Let's sacrifice people so to please this God so that the rest of us won't get boils and sores. So basically, again, this is a slap in the face with this God, Typhoon. Just like the uh, abundance of frogs was to the God, Heq, H-E-Q-T. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So, the picture is this. Pharaoh's heart is getting harder and harder, and so God's disciplines are getting stronger and stronger. The plagues are getting worse. Okay, the the plagues are getting worse. Instead of just being annoyances, they're actually becoming quite difficult to live with. So the same is true for us personally. The more we sin, the greater or harder the lesson is that we need to learn. Verse 15. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. So what's Moses doing by saying this? Why is he saying this, this sentence here? Basically he's saying, I could have destroyed you all. I could have just wiped you all out. That's what God is saying. Simply by speaking the word, God could have wiped out the entire Egyptian nation. But why not? Because he's merciful. God does not treat us, God does not treat sinners as they deserve. That's what we call mercy. We do not receive what we deserve. So, Here, Moses is trying to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he should be grateful because God is not giving him what he deserves, and he deserves worse, but he's not getting it. Now, for us as Christians, how grateful should we be because God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? And the Scriptures say that. Is it Psalm 103? I think it is. In the New Testament, it says love covers a multitude of sins. We should be thanking God every day for his loving kindness. And the fact is that none of us deserve the gift of salvation. Absolutely none of us. It's a pure gift. It's a beautiful gift. And I was just talking to someone before this morning. It's something we need to always remember that salvation is a gift. Don't take it for granted. So God raised up Pharaoh in order that all people throughout history could know that he is the only true God. He is the omnipotent, that he is sovereign. And to those who would protest that it was unfair for God to use Pharaoh in this way, Paul would say, who are you to question God? Can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? The potter has the right to do whatever he chooses with the lump of clay. And God has the right to do whatever he wants with us. That's in Romans chapter 9 verse 21. It's about God's sovereignty. Because God had just said, but indeed for this purpose I've raised you up. So God put Pharaoh in that position. God puts every leader that's here in this country, in any country, they're put there by God. need to remember that. And so God is having his way. I've got a a quote from John Corson which helps us to get this into perspective. He says, How arrogantly foolish of us to think that we can figure God out. Truly our God is an awesome God. Yes, he's a loving father, our Abba, our Papa. But he is also the one who, without any explanation, told his friend to sacrifice his son. Genesis 22.2 The one who struck a king who served him well with leprosy for offering a sacrifice in the temple. 1 Chronicles 26.20 I can't read my Bible without realizing that my father is loving and kind, compassionate and tender. But he is also awesome and huge, powerful and other. Yes, we rejoice in our father, Yes, we understand his nature as we look at Jesus, but along with that we must also understand that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom Proverbs chapter nine verse ten. We think we have God all figured out, but one can't read the scriptures without coming to the conclusion that he doesn't fit into any box very easily. Stand in awe of God, be amazed by his greatness, by his size, by his sovereignty and then marvel that he's allowed us to be brought into his family, that he's made himself known to us through Jesus personally, that he placed us in a time in history where the gospel message surrounds us constantly. Sometimes I lift my hands in love and adoration to the Lord. Other times I fall on my face on my living room floor, speechless in his presence. He raised that Pharaoh simply to show his power, and he stooped down to save us to do the same. It's by his right arm he had to... Use his arm, not his fingers, to, like he did for creation, but his arm to save us. So that was a quote from John Corson. And I d- enjoyed that because it just helps us to realize that we can't put God in a box. We can't figure him out. We can't know what he's going to do or why he does everything. You know, there's going to be some things you just won't understand. I believe it's because of his holiness and his righteousness, and then you got his mercy as well. and the two things sometimes, in a way, clash. So Guzik says, talking about Pharaoh resisting, if Pharaoh thought he was accomplishing anything with his resistance against God, he was completely wrong. All his stubborn rebellion merely glorified the Lord more in the end. So the lesson for us, because you know Pharaoh is getting worse and worse and he's making life harder and harder for the Israelites, the lesson for us is not to worry and fret when evil people or evil groups, or nations, seem to prosper as they are rebelling against God. In the end, God will turn it all around and use it for His glory. So you might have a situation at work where you're being persecuted, or things are tough. It's okay. Because God can turn it around and use it for His glory. Here's one example of God's power being declared in all the earth. Remember God said He's raising Pharaoh up so his power would be known throughout the earth? Well, here's an example where It happens. It's Rahab hiding the two spies when they went across the Jordan and went into the land of Canaan. It's in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. There's plenty of other examples where people refer back to the Exodus, where how God delivered his people, how God split the sea, how God destroyed the Egyptian army, and, and how God destroyed the other nations. Here's just one of them. Now, before they lay down, This is Rahab hiding the spies. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan. Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. What an awesome testimony that is. And that's, going back to our verse in Exodus, is what God wanted to do. That's his purpose. But for this purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And guess what? It was. Verse 17. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So here we have some of the Egyptians are already believing that God is God because otherwise they wouldn't have shifted their livestock and their their servants into the houses. And later on we read that it was a mixed multitude who left Egypt. Some of the Egyptians must have gone with the Israelites. So it's the responsibility of the masters to care for their servants, to protect them from the storm that would otherwise kill them. Now Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And it's only in coming to Jesus that we are spared from the hailstorm that would otherwise destroy us. So we ask, why is this happening? Why are these things taking place in my life? Why are all these things coming down on me? Now, many times, not all the time, sometimes we go through trials and it's God's design for our lives. But many times, I know in my life, a lot of the things I've suffered is because I'm out of the will of God. There are people needlessly getting beat up and bruised by storms because they fail to come inside to the household of God. They fail to come in to Jesus. It says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Hebrews 10.25 We get needlessly pelted and pounded when we ignore the Lord's table, when we go in alone rather than joining the company of believers for times of instruction and worship, praise and prayer, when we fail to seek shelter in Jesus. Okay, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. So, ever seen a thunderstorm like that? Fire darting to the ground with hail? I'm, I'm not sure if, it's, if they're talking about lightning or if it's actually talking about fire. So this is one of those things which could be supernatural, not just a a big storm. Because it it says in the next part, And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both men and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Yeah. Can you imagine being in the land of Goshen? And you walk right up to this invisible barrier, put your hand through. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> I just kind of think that would be pretty amazing to see this kind of wall of hail and just, you know, the sun shining. Everything's nice and all around you, it's just like black clouds and, and this massive fire. And Yeah would have been amazing. We've finished there where Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time. This is a false confession. It's a pseudo-confession. The problem here is he acknowledges his sin only this time. He's failing to confess all the past sins that have brought him to this point. And also, we can learn another lesson here. Pharaoh is grieved at the consequences of his sin, but not from the sin itself. He didn't want to receive the consequence of the sin, but he wasn't actually sorry that he'd done the sin. Verse 27. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Whose decision was this to not let the people go? Was it the people's decision or was it Pharaoh's decision? It was Pharaoh's alone. He's the boss. He's making the decisions for Egypt. Well, now he's blaming his people as well. He's kind of passing the buck on to other people that's something that we can do when we confess we partly blame someone else It is partly my fault but mainly them we implicate somebody else alright verse 28 entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail for it is enough I will let you go and you shall stay no longer so this must have been an awesome storm for Pharaoh to go stop I've had enough you know it wasn't like the frogs oh one more day no, this was, please make this stop. I'm scared. So, the other reason that people confess is to get a reprieve from the consequences. So, true confession is not just for a reprieve, but repentance. Not a desire to save face, but a decision to make an about face, to turn around. Not insulation from correction, but a determination to change direction that's true repentance and we know that pharaoh's confession was not sincere because it didn't lead to obedience and 29 so Moses said to him as soon as i've gone out of the city i will spread up my hands to the lord the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the lord's but as for you and your servants i know that you will not yet fear the lord god Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So basically, God is leaving two of the four crops to grow later. So in judgment, he's still showing mercy. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart. Remember in chapter 8, he did that twice. He and his servants. So it says this time it's different, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So the hail ceased, the lightning was gone, the thunder stopped, the fire was gone. Yet Pharaoh's response to God's mercy, God's loving kindness, was to harden his own heart and not be thankful for the mercy and loving kindness shown to him by God. And That seems foolish, doesn't it? But it's common. If you'd like to look up Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verses 18 to 23. Because what we're seeing here in this story, in this recounting of what happened in Egypt back then, it's the same thing that has happened throughout all history, so is Romans chapter one verses 18 to twenty three It says, "But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them, for since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, and they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. So Pharaoh recognizes what God has delivered him from this judgment, but he doesn't say thank you. Instead, he goes the opposite way and hardens his heart. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Sound like Pharaoh? Sound like the Egyptians? Okay, chapter 10. I know we're flying through this, but we're going to stop at the end and we're going to bring it all together. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So another purpose for these plagues is not only that the Egyptians would see his power, but that his own people would be so convinced about who he is that they would tell their children and their grandchildren that this would have such an impact on them that they couldn't help but say to their kids, hey, guess what God did? You know, something amazing. He, he brought in these 10 plagues on the Egyptians. He split the sea. He defeated our enemies. And, And it would have been a fantastic story to tell your kids. You know, this God who delivers you. Now, you can learn lessons by, you know, standing in this nice sunshine and watching the hail come down. But guess what? They had to endure the water turning into blood, frogs swarming through their houses and lice covering their bodies. So why does God allow some plagues to hit the Israelites and not others? Well, There's no testimony without tests. How can you have a testimony if you never suffered anything to testify about? A vibrant, passionate and authentic walk with the Lord does not come from second-hand theology. It only comes through the things we experience personally. If we don't experience things, we can't grow. Verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, Behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither you nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is going to get really bugged by this. We talk about plagues in our farming, um, in our farming community. Well, imagine that everything was eaten. Every last bit of crop was eaten. It would just be, um, uh, what do you call it, a national emergency? Probably, yeah, a disaster. So... Verse 7, then Pharaoh's servants said to him, now Pharaoh's servants are starting to click. They're realizing that their nation's being destroyed, their livelihood's being destroyed, they're not going to have any food. And they're going, you know what? Before, in the previous one, it said their hearts were getting hard, but now they're starting to wake up. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? Come on, Pharaoh, wake up, smell the roses. Can't you see what you're doing to yourself and your nation? Your prideful heart and your hard heart is destroying you and us. Please stop this madness. But what was so clear to Pharaoh's servants was not obvious to Pharaoh at all. He didn't get it. Now, why not? Have you ever wondered why when you talk to unbelievers that they don't want to stop their sin, that they actually enjoy their sin? Well, the answer is in a couple of verses. If you'd like to look up Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, we're going to talk about blindness and confusion. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this live no longer as the unbelievers do, for they are hopelessly confused. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. So, the key words there, hopelessly confused and full of darkness. Their minds are full of darkness. Okay, the next one to look up is Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Where does this darkness come from? Where does this blindness come from? comes with Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. i read that again. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. That's why non-Christians don't get it. They're blinded by Satan, and that's why they choose to live a life which destroys them. But even sadder is when a Christian chooses the world over God and allows themselves to be blinded or deceived by their sin. Have you ever confronted a fellow believer about something, and they won't listen, they refuse to change, and sometimes even refusing to admit that they are wrong, or they justify their actions? And then the only option is to exercise church discipline, as outlined in Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17 So verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Pharaoh is basically saying, I'll choose who will go. Verse 9. And Moses says, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So he's saying, no, you can't take your families, only the men can go. That's what he's saying there. Probably thinking that, well, the men will come back quickly because the families are still back in Egypt. And they were driven out, Moses and Aaron were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So there was no compromise. We'll talk about compromise in a minute. But the main point here is that our families need to serve the Lord together. Right, Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be after them, for they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine Esperance if the locust had come through? Not a blade of grass, not a leaf on a tree, you know, just completely barren. God used locusts to judge his own people. You see that in Joel. Um, now, verse 16, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. And entreat the Lord your God that He may take away from me this death only, so here's Pharaoh no no uh, what do you call it? no desire to truly repent, and he thinks that he can just play Moses like a playing a well-trained violin. he's saying, oh, "I've only sinned this once, and he thinks he's still in control, but he's not now Moses could have said no way." There's no way I'm going to listen to you anymore. You've, you've broken your promises too many times, but what does Moses do? He's a humble guy, and he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. So that's, again, showing Moses' meekness, his patience, his unbelievable humility, and that's how we need to be for God to use us. Verse 19, And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children go. The ninth plague, darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. So basically... Imagine waking up, the alarm clock goes off, and it's still dark. But then you drive to work, and it's still dark. And you come home, and it's still dark. And you, you For three days, you've got no orientation. And it says, they did not rise from their place for three days. So that it's like the whole nation was paralyzed. They all stayed in their houses for three days. There's a couple of interesting correlations here. There's three hours of darkness when Jesus hung on the cross. The disciples were go on to experience three days of inner darkness between Good Friday and Easter Sunday when until they understood that hope was not lost and that death had been conquered, that the light of the world had indeed risen from the dead. Verse 23, But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So, application for us, is there light in our homes? Is the presence of the Lord there? Are your kids being taught to walk in his ways? Is your home a place where you love each other and pray together, where things are right? Let us live in the light, let us walk in the light, let us be obedient to that which God has illuminated for you and me. Last few verses. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back, let your little ones also go with you. So this is a final compromise. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Every animal must go. Our entire wealth must come with us. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Isn't that good? All our possessions are God's. And we don't know what possessions God's going to use at one particular time. So it's all got to be given to God. We'll come back to that compromise shortly. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. So Pharaoh gives Moses a death threat. But Guess what? Moses goes on to lead every one of God's people out of Egypt, and Pharaoh finds his own son dead and his army is at the bottom of the Red Sea. So, I really like to go through the four compromises, but I'm. Are you guys able to hang in there for another ten minutes? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Pharaoh, Moses, and Pharaoh had been having it out like a boxing match, right, in the ring. Picture this: you know, in the, in the ring. So, round one. After being punched with the plagues of blood, frogs, lice and flies, Pharaoh says to Moses, I'll let you and your people serve the Lord, but you must remain in Egypt. That's chapter 8, verse 25. We'll be stoned if we stay here, said Moses, and they both returned to their corners. Pharaoh said, you can do this, but Moses said, no, no, I'm not compromising, stop there. Round two. Ding, ding, ding. All right. I'll let you leave the country, but don't go very far. That's in chapter 8, verse 28. And Moses says, no, we must go where God directs. Round three. Having been struck with boils and hail, Pharaoh says, you and your men can go as far as you want, but your women and children must stay here. Chapter 10, verse 11. Moses says, no, we're taking our families. And again, they both go back to the corners. Next round. The double punch of locusts and darkness. Pharaoh says, you and your families can go, but your livestock must stay. Your wealth must stay. No, said Moses, we're going to take our families and flocks. We're going to take our kids and our cattle. We're going to take the whole kit and caboodle, if you heard that phrase before. So, Egypt is a picture of the world. And Satan seeks to make the same compromises to people today. So the first one is stay in the world. right? He says, sure, you might have it to make a brick or two, slavery, to sin. But at least you're familiar with the system. Why take a risk on that which you can't see? Why leave the known for the unknown? Why set your sights on a kingdom which claims to be eternal yet is presently invisible? Sit back and enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You'll still make it to heaven. So, if you look up 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. So these verses describe this first compromise. Stay in the world. It describes a carnal or fleshly Christian still controlled by their sinful nature. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I'm reading for New Living Translation. When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual or mature people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready for you are still controlled by your sinful nature, you are jealous of one another and quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Yes, are you living like people of the world?" Yes, when one of you says, "I'm a follower of Paul," another says, "I follow Paulus, aren't you acting just like people of the world so infants in Christ what Finishing off here with is our growth as Christians starts as an infant in Christ. We start as a babe in Christ, and when we first saved, yes, there is a change, but some people don't grow very much, and and like babies are selfish. Babies just want what they want, and they don't really help people around them, and that's what we're like as brand new Christians. As I said, there's many in the church like this still living as they were before they were born again. These people need to be discipled. They need to be taught to be followers of Jesus. And this is a great commission. God didn't say, make believers out of people. He said, make disciples out of people. So we're going to go on and, and see the process and how we grow as a Christian. It's, it's a pretty illuminating process. When we choose to listen to God instead of to Satan, when we start to grow in our faith, Satan changes his tactic to, all right, Well, go ahead and believe in Jesus, but don't go too far. Don't get too radical. Don't get too excited. Now, here's a little example from the Old Testament. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Sounds great so far. But not with a loyal heart. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Apathy. Apathy. Just yeah, yeah, it sounds good. I know I need to do that, but you know what? I'll do a little bit, but you know, it's kinda of a bit boring, you know, and I just do it a little bit, but not too much. I just do as much as I have to. So this is this compromise is where there is some progress in the life of, of the believer, but they refuse to give up certain sins or fully count the cost. They refuse to fully commit and fully submit or surrender to God. We all go through that stage. And when we ignore Satan again, and we say, no, 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 I'm not going to be apathetic. I'm going to be full on for Jesus. I'm going to be sold out for Jesus. I'm going to be completely devoted to him. Satan says to us, yeah, that's fine. You be radical, but don't rope your kids into it. When they're older, let them make their own decision about whether or not to follow Jesus. Until then... Leave them in Egypt where they can play football and take dancing lessons. Have you ever spoken to people I have personally and said, so do you tell your kids about the Lord? do you read the Bible to them do you do you educate them about God and they say nah, you know when they're old enough they can make up their own mind and I've actually heard people say that and there's people who are you know full on for we're talking about full-on for Christians but They've forgotten about their family. They're so busy ministering to the Lord that they've forgotten about their family. Here's a guy, or here's an example like this. Jotham, another um, king of Judah. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. He prepared his ways. He was full on, sold out for Jesus. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. But still the people acted corruptly. So what he did, did not pass on to the people. And another example is found in First Samuel chapter 3, 11-13. It's Eli. He was a great man, a good priest, but he failed in his parenting. It says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the sin which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain or rebuke them. So Eli did not restrain or rebuke his sons, and they became vile. So God's making the point here that Eli, you're not a good dad. You failed to raise your kids in the ways of the Lord. And as I said, there's many godly men and women who have made the mistake of putting ministry ahead of family or something ahead of family and they've neglected to put the time and effort into their own children. So here's two good examples, Joshua. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24:15. Joshua was determined to take his family along with him on his spiritual journey. And my favorite example of a good father is Philip the evangelist used by God in a mighty way in chapter 8 in Acts. You know, the the big revivals. Um, you know, he was transported, you know, like Doctor Who and the TARDIS, just one place to the other, from here to there. And it's like, wow, you know, there's all these people coming to know the Lord, Simon the sorcerer, all those, you know, events. And then he disappears out of the account. And where do we find him? We find him in Acts 21. And we see him, and he's taking people into his home. Paul and some other people go to his home. And he's not a traveling evangelist anymore, it appears. Instead, he's spent time establishing a good home. It says in Acts 21, verses 8 to 9, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters, he prophesied. So he had put his effort and his time into raising four godly daughters. So that's a commendation for him there. So the last compromise is this. When we decide, like Moses, that we worship his families, Satan comes up with a final compromise. Go ahead, throw in your lot with God. You and your family can even be radical in your faith, but don't spend money on it. Don't give generously and cheerfully to God. Don't give God his due. Don't use whatever gifts or talents you may have to invest in eternity. Now what did Jesus say about where your treasure is? Where your treasure is? There your heart will be also, Matthew six twenty one. If Moses and the people of Israel were to leave their treasure, their riches, their possessions in Egypt, guess where the hearts would be? Back in Egypt still, okay? And to the degree that we sink our hearts into the soil of this world, our hearts remain there as well. Ray Comfort describes giving as the final frontier. After we've learned to pray, to read the word, to live a life in obedience to God, to walk by faith, to share the gospel, Then we must learn to give generously. So I'm going to quote from Ray Comfort's Evidence Bible. And it's found in the Principles of Growth for the New and Growing Christian, Tithing, the Final Frontier. He says, It has been said that the wallet is the final frontier. It is often the final area to be conquered, the last thing that we surrender to God. Jesus spoke much about money. He said that we cannot serve God and mammon, Matthew 6.24. Mammon was a common Aramaic word for riches, which is related to another Hebrew word signifying that which is to be trusted. So mammon, that which is to be trusted, from that word. In other words, we cannot trust both God and money. Either money is our source of joy, our great love, our sense of security, the supplier of our needs, or God is. When you open your purse or wallet, give generously and regularly to your local church. A guide to how much you should give can be found in the tithe of the Old Testament, 10% of your income. Whatever amount you give, make sure you give something to the work of God. And he references Malachi chapter three to 11 Give because you want to, not because you have to. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians seven. So learn to hold your money with a loose hand. So that's Ray Comfort's thing there. So to summarize, the four compromises which the devil uses to limit us in our walk with God, they're a useful tool to examine ourselves with. How far have we come in our walk with God? So one, are we still in the world, controlled by a sinful nature? Two, are we compromising? Don't be too radical, don't get too excited. Are you following in most areas of your life, but not all? Uh, Is there apathy in your Christian walk? Are there still things you're not willing to give up? Three, third compromise, don't take your family. Are you the spiritual leader of your home? Are you taking the time to lead, guide, and direct your family into the love of God? Are you discipling your kids or your brothers or sisters or nieces or nephews, whatever it might be? Now, it's interesting that three comes after two. Did you realize that? Three comes after two. All right. Because you can't effectively lead your home until you are fully committed yourself. That's an important point. It's not reasonable or logical to expect your family to listen to what you say if you're not leading by example. And uh, something that really convicts me is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So that's how we need to be in our families. Lead by example. The last one. Are you trusting God with your money, your riches, your possessions? Have you learned to give generously? Where is your heart? What are you putting your trust in practically on a day-to-day basis? If we can all look up Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read some selective verses from there to finish. So as you're looking it up, i just read those out to you again. Stay in the world. Compromise number one. Baby Christian. Then, Okay, well, start to follow Jesus, but don't become too radical. And don't get too excited. Stay apathetic. Three, once you get excited about it and and submit yourself to God, then you need to start leading your family. And four, once you start leading your family, you need to start being willing to trust God with your riches, with your possessions. So, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verse 19 through to... 21, and then I'm going to jump down to another verse. So it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Verse 31. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And finally, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So I just want to finish with that verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Remember, this is a journey we're on. We all start in the same place. We all start as babes in Christ. There's no shame in that. We all have to grow. If you recognize that there are areas in your walk with God that need improving, don't despair or be discouraged or give up or throw in the towel. Instead, seek the Lord and ask for his help. Your sanctification is his will, his plan, his desire. Also, seek help and counsel from those around you. We must not try to hide our problems. If we do that, they will stay there and we won't be able to deal with them. They'll just get worse, actually. That's right. He gets pussy and sore. Confess your sins and your weaknesses to a trusted brother or sister. You don't do it the whole church. But ask them to pray for you. Ask them where you can be accountable to them. The Christian life is not something that we can achieve by ourselves. We need each other. We all need support and encouragement. That's why God has given us the body of Christ, our spiritual family. Because when one falls, the others are there to help lift them up again. So just encourage you all to examine yourselves, and, and none of us are there yet. Not that I've attained, Paul said, but I press on. Okay? And that's what we want to do. That's my goal for you. You know, I'm trying to equip you to help disciple you, but I can't do it from here. You need to do it with each other on a one to one basis, small groups. And encourage each other to grow in Christ. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, there's a lot of um there's so much we can learn from your word, and I just pray that you help us to apply what we've learned today, that we can avoid compromise, that we can grow in our Christian walk. And it might not happen overnight, but Lord we want to be on that path of falling more and more in love with you and being more and more committed to you. And blessing those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.